So a lot of good stuff going on. You heard some of that. We do have essentials starting today during the 11 o'clock service. You say, what is essentials? It's where you find everything you need to get connected here at chapel. Get connected with groups, get, become members, get connected with ministry, all those things. So it's at 11 o'clock. If you're interested in that, you can slide in there. As well, we do start a new series today. If you have a Bible, you're from Galatians chapter 1. So Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to be in Galatians for the next uh, 11 to 12 weeks, probably right up to Thanksgiving uh, for multiple multiple reasons. I've been praying about this for most of this year, getting ready for this series and, and just studying, getting prepared, because I believe this series is very vital. Galatians is the favorite book of Martin Luther, the reformer, because he felt like it brought the gospel of grace back to the forefront of the church. Uh, many of the great theologians look at Galatians as the centerpiece of the gospel. And I believe in a time and day and age in which the gospel is kind of pushed to the side of things, and even religion and politics and race and everything else has been put to the forefront of the church. And so we're going to spend a while. And so John Pemberton, you probably got a Coke when you came in. John Pemberton is the one who invented Coca-Cola. Right? He had this formula that actually had cocaine in it, so you couldn't pass a drug test if you drank Coke and then had to go to work. And, and so he invented Coca-Cola and started selling it on the streets like a drug dealer, but selling it as a syrup. It was a pharmaceutical slash a drink that was better than water, not as good as sweet tea. And so he had this incredible formula, and only him and one other person actually had that recipe. And for many, many years, he, sh he shared that recipe with only one person. And as time moved on, only two people ever had the same recipe at the same time, and they never flew together. And so a couple years, we went to the Coca-Cola Museum and saw all the Coca-Cola stuff and all the uh, history and all the products, all the marketing, all the consumer stuff. And the recipe is actually in a vault inside the Coca-Cola Museum, and no one has access to that vault except for two people, and they're never on a plane at the same time. And so it's interesting. Remember, it used to be a, a phrase with Coke, the real thing. Why would they market their Coke, their soda, as the real thing? It's because there was a whole lot of knockoffs. Right? So when I was growing up, we, we didn't get to drink soda because it was expensive, but I remember there was Bubba Cola. Remember Bubba Cola? <laughs> you know you country when you're drinking Bubba Cola. RC was the name brand stuff. You, had, you also have RC, Cola. You got all these knockoffs. Right? And so Coke had to come up with this, this marketing technique of it's the real thing. Right? And they began to market it as the, the real thing. And everything else was a counterfeit. And some stats is 91% of the world's population has heard of Coke. 74% have seen a Coke. 51% have tasted Coke. But only 10% of the world's population has heard the gospel. Like, that's crazy that America is better at sharing sugar-based drinks than we are the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when you get into Galatians, what's interesting is, is this letter that Paul wrote is very different than all the other letters that he writes. Right, most of the other letters he writes, he starts out with this great greeting, like grace and peace to you. You're amazing. I love what God is doing in your midst. And then he may bring a little bit of correction. This letter, as you're going to see, we, we open it up in just a second. He doesn't start like that. He literally says, hey, grace and peace to you. Y'all have got this mess. How in the world have you gotten this far off base this quick? Literally, he just starts reprimanding them immediately. And he even uses the word in there at some point in, in I think, verse 8 or 9, where he says, if any man preaches another gospel other than what I preached to you or gives you something other than the real thing, let him be accursed, which in the Greek means let him be damned. 
Meaning, let him go to hell if he's going to preach this message. And if you're going to believe this message, you're going to follow him there. So this letter for, for Paul is extremely vital because he's astounded that he started this church on this missionary journey into Turkey, uh, which was the, the place of the Gauls. Remember the, the Gallic Wars, if you did any Greek or Roman history? There's a bunch of Celtics or Druids that were there in Turkey. He goes, he shares the gospel of grace with them. They're getting saved. He sets up a church there. He goes back. He's in Antioch when he writes this letter. And when he's in Antioch, he hears that these people that he watched get delivered from all this weird spirituality and human sacrifice and broken free from all their junk by the gospel of grace have now started believing other gospels. And he's astounded in only a few years they could get that far off base and he brings them back basically to say no no remember the real thing I want you to taste the real thing again quit tasting all these counterfeits of of adding law to the gospel quit drinking all these counterfeits of adding politics and religion to the gospel come back and drink again the gospel of grace so your body and your mind and your tongue can taste the real thing once again and that's basically the whole premise of this letter starting in verse one Paul says this way Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. In the next few verses, Paul's literal plan here is to remind them that I'm a real apostle. Not like these apostles that are coming and teaching this other stuff to you. I'm not an apostle because somebody voted me in. I'm not an apostle because I was gifted or I was talented or I was trained well. I'm an apostle because when I was persecuting Christians, going to kill more Christians, Jesus himself revealed himself to me in my brokenness and my sin and saved me. And set me up to share the gospel with Gentiles. That's why I'm an apostle. I'm, I'm not an apostle because I'm making money off this thing. And he goes back to, I'm a real apostle and also have a real message. And my message didn't come from man or even from my experience. It was delivered by Jesus himself. Not an angel, not an apostle, not a man, not a pope, not a televangelist, not Fox News, not CNN News. But by Jesus Christ himself. That's why you can know it's the real thing. And he says, I want to remind you, I want you to drink of this gospel. And I want you to be so full of it that it flows out of you, that this unconditional love you receive flows out of you into the people around you, and you serve God and love God from this overflow of this gospel of grace. That's the whole point of this letter, that the gospel of grace is the main idea. The big idea is that the Galatians needed to be reminded as Jesus follows to embrace the gospel message of the crucified Messiah that justifies all people through faith and empowers them to live and love like Jesus. And so he keeps the whole letter, he keeps bringing them back. Slow down. Stop. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace. Hey, I know you want to go and do this, but listen, you're saved by grace. Your identity is not in your flesh. It's in the spirit that you were given by grace. Over and over and over again, he brings them right back to the real thing. Of grace over and over and again. 
And what is so important about the gospel message of grace is this. That the world can counterfeit with Bubba Cola and get everything just close enough that you actually believe it's the real thing. They can counterfeit worship. They can counterfeit great preaching. They can counterfeit great media. They can even counterfeit the anointing. They can counterfeit community. They can counterfeit good works. They can counterfeit service. They can counterfeit missions. They can counterfeit everything. And that's what Paul was trying to say is, listen, all these things are counterfeits. The only thing the world cannot counterfeit, the only thing the enemy cannot counterfeit, the only thing people cannot counterfeit is grace. You will never Find another religion that offers grace. You will never find another person outside the kingdom of heaven that offers grace. They may offer works. They may offer, you know, feeling good about yourself. But none of them offer grace. Grace is the king centerpiece of the kingdom of heaven. And he keeps bringing them right back to it. And he says, I want you to have gospel clarity. I want you to know what the gospel truly is. I want you to have gospel integrity to live up to the standard of this grace you've been given. Gospel community that if we've received grace, we should give grace to one another and to help one another. And gospel grace activity, which means when you've received grace, you should share it more than you share a Coke. That if you've truly received grace, then the world should hear of grace, know of grace, taste of grace, and enjoy grace. And the thing about grace, I think the reason we don't like it in church world, we, and what I've learned is we like it for ourselves, we just don't like it for anybody else. We like to say, oh, I'm saved by grace, but then when somebody else needs grace, it's like, well, I, you know, well, what's he done to deserve it? We are hardwired to make people pay for the wrongs they do and make them show they deserve any gifts they receive. We do it with our kids. If our kids are being good, we'll give them things. If they're not being good, we'll withhold them things. That's where Santa Claus comes from. If you don't be good, Santa Claus is not coming. If you're not really good, and he's checking once and twice on the list to see who's naughty and see who's nice, that's filtered into our gospel. We serve a God who is almost like Santa Claus, where if you're nice, you receive salvation, but if you're not, you receive judgment. That's karma. And karma is this principle of if you do good things, you get good things. If you do bad things, you get bad things. But the scandal of grace is this. It is a completely unmerited and undeserved favor and love from God that he gives to you. Even when you're a sinner, he shows you that he loves you by giving you grace. It's completely unmerited and undeserved in the fact that even when you don't deserve it, he still gives it to you. It's unmerited and unfair, actually, that God would give grace to Jacob, the conniver and con man, but he rejected Esau, who did everything right. It's grace that's scandalous that welcomes the prodigal son home while it ignores the prodigal brother. It's grace that looks down upon a Saul who's persecuting Christians and he'll walk into heaven to the cheers of the people he murdered as he walks into heaven to be celebrated by grace. It's unfair. And in a world that all we want is things to be fair, grace is not fair. One person said this way, we miss the point that the God of our kingdom dispenses gifts, not wages. 
None of us get paid according to merit, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's requirements for a perfect life. If paid on the basis of fairness, we would all end up in hell. If, the, if we could have been saved by good, by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses. For grace cannot be reduced to general accepted accounting principles. And the bottom line of grace is this. No one deserves it, yet everybody gets it. Nobody deserves it, yet everybody gets it. And so this gospel of grace is what Paul keeps going back to. And he says this, the gospel is this. Jesus is the saving king. Not saving homeboy, not saving best friend, but the saving king who pre-existed with God before the foundations of the universe. In accordance with God's promises, he became human in the line of David. Died for our sins, was buried, was resurrected, and on the third day was seen and was installed as king at God's right hand. Where he sent the spirit and he returned to set up his kingdom in fullness on earth. That's the gospel. It's even though we fall... He restores. When we stumble, he picks us up. When we sin and we are dead, he brings us life. That is the gospel of grace that none of us deserve it, but God brings it from heaven to earth to change everything about us, about the universe, about everything else in the world. And it's interesting, Tim Keller said this way, the gospel is therefore not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but the A to Z of the Christian life. Our problems arise largely because we don't continually return to the gospel to work in it and to live it out. That's why Martin Luther wrote, The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. Most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into our heads continually. One of the things I think next week we'll lock into how to spot a counterfeit gospel and what they are in our culture. One of the things I think has happened is in order to reach more people, We've reduced the gospel from the gospel of grace and the gospel of kingdom and the gospel of Jesus as king to a gospel of just mere forgiveness. In reality, we've, we've changed the gospel from Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We've changed it to the great commandment where we just think the gospel's love. Love God, love your neighbor, that's all the gospel. No, the gospel is this gospel of transformation that brings dead people to life that brings people that are destined to hell into the citizens and in citizenship of kingdom of heaven to reign with him when he returns at some point in the very near future. And the gospel is not just the entry point in the kingdom, it is the kingdom. It's not just some talking point of, of how you say yes to God, it is from A to Z. You don't grow from grace, you grow deeper into it. You don't grow and add stuff on top of grace. You begin to unpack grace. And I used to tell like this, that the moment my kids were my kids, they were 100% my kids. They don't grow more into my kids. I don't learn to love them more or love them less. The moment they are born, they are my kids. But they don't understand what they have access to in me. They don't understand what it means to be a son or a daughter of Bobby. They don't understand what they have access to that I'll do for them, that I'll give them, that I'll sacrifice for them. And they'll spend the entire rest of their life learning what it means to be a child of Bobby. In the same way, the moment you are saved, you have access to everything God 
has. A full inheritance in Jesus. You have full identity in Jesus. And you'll spend the rest of your life not adding to that, but unpacking what you receive the moment you experience grace. The Bible says that our identity is by grace. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Our standing before God, the grace in which we now stand in Romans 5. Our behavior, we behave in the world by the grace of God. Our living, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Our holiness is not based on works, but by his grace. God called us to a holy living because of his own purpose and grace. Our strength for living, being strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus, 2 Timothy. Our way of speaking, let your speech always be gracious. Our serving, serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace, 1 Peter 1. Our sufficiency, my grace is sufficient for you, and God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Our response to difficulty and surfing, the grace in our help in time of need. Our participation in God's mission is by grace. Our future is by God's grace, and our eternity is by God's grace. There is nothing you do in the Christian life that is not by grace. Nothing. And that's why Paul is astounded at these Galatians, where all of a sudden they're starting to add things to it. Well, yeah, it's grace, but then also circumcision. Or it's grace, but also apostleship. Or it's grace, but also works. Anything you add to grace makes it no longer grace. And Paul keeps coming back over and over to show what grace is. And there's four threads he gives us in this scripture. I'm going to read it one more time. He says, who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing about grace is about Jesus and not us. He gave himself for us to deliver us, not just forgive us, but to deliver us, but also for God's glory. So the first thread is this. The gospel is all about Jesus, not about us. It's not that God looked down from heaven and said, man, these people are so incredible. We just need to go hang out with them for a minute. It's not like you looked down from, from heaven and said, these people are so great. Just think what we can accomplish with them. No, the gospel, the centerpiece of the gospel is not humans. The centerpiece of the gospel is not your redemptive qualities. The centerpiece of the gospel is Jesus. And anything that tries to put anybody else in front of Jesus, it's no longer the gospel. He is, in Colossians says, he is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That everything points to Jesus. That the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in this human Jesus. That his spirit had existed forever, but he's carried in his human flesh. And everything about the Bible points back to Jesus. The theological term is, he's, it's a hypostatic union. He's fully divine. He's 100% God. 
but also fully man. He's 100% man. And in that is everything you need. He's enough of God that he can bring salvation, but he's enough human that he can connect with us, feel our pain, feel our shame, feel our death, feel our sorrow, see our temptation. He can experience what we experience, but he has the ability to overcome everything we've experienced. It's, it's the beauty. And what I've learned in life is this. You can find a whole lot about somebody but just asking them this question, who is Jesus? If you just ask them, somebody says, well, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. Just ask them, well, what do you think about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the answer will tell you everything you need to know. Like on Twitter or X, whatever it's called this week, there's a bunch of pastors that argue back and forth. And half of them who are extremely liberal, when they talk about Jesus, they're not talking about God. They're talking about a man who is very loving. The other side, they, they talk about all they see is this God who just wants judgment upon everything. And when you ask yourself, what do you think about Jesus? A.W. Tozer said that's the most important thing in the world about you, is what comes to your mind when you think about Jesus. Is he the pre-existent one? Where Jesus didn't show up in a manger. He was there when the earth was being formed, when Adam was being formed, when Eve was being formed, when they were there. Jesus was there. With Gideon in the wine press, Jesus was there. With Abraham, Jesus was there. With Jacob, Jesus was there. He's always been there. He's preexistent. But then he incarnated. He, he took on human form by being born to Mary. And then he walked this earth tempted in every single way we were tempted. There's not a single way you've been tempted that Jesus did not experience. But yet when he, was in when he was tempted, he remained sinless. So he was born sinless and remained sinless. Then he went to a cross that he did not deserve to pour out his blood to be a final sacrifice. Then he went to the grave. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave to show that he didn't just pay the price. He showed the victory over sin. Then for 40 days and 40 nights, he preached the kingdom of heaven, which was telling the disciples, listen, this is the beginning. This is grace, but I'm coming to set up my kingdom. And I'm going to give a down payment with my spirit in 40 days. So you go to the upper room, you wait, you pray, I'm going to pour out my spirit. And that's going to be a foretaste of what the entire universe is going to be like when I return. So he's human. He faced what he faced, but he's also God. In every single way, he was God. He was the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. He is the bread of life. He is the lion of Judah. He is everything the Bible begins to talk about God. He is that person. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the voice in the wilderness. He is the hope of our salvation. He is our eternity. He is our salvation. He is our love. He is our way, our truth, and our life. Everything the Bible says about God is talking about Jesus. Yet this God thought the plan would work by God leaving the throne and coming to a manger. Why? A few years ago, we had, a, um, had to help with youth ministry at one of our campuses, and we went to a state park in Tennessee. And it was one of these days, like 105 degrees outside, and the water was fed from the bottom of this dam, so it was like really cold water. We had this one kid, I won't say his name in case he watches, this kid, who is the, the punk kid. He's always a kid getting in trouble. He's always a kid doing something stupid. And so we're jumping off these little cliffs. He jumps in this water, and he starts acting like he's drowning. No one believed this kid was actually drowning. 
Like he's the kid that is always cut up. And so I watch his head kind of bob and go under. I'm like, oh, he's just playing. And then he comes back up, and then he's like, help, help, help. We're like, gosh. Oh, and then he goes back under for a minute. And I'm like, ah, oh, he's just. So I'm, the, I'm in charge. Next thing I know, he goes under, and I'm like, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi, four. I'm like, oh, maybe he's really drowning, right? So when somebody's drowning, you don't take a book on how to swim for dummies and throw it at them. Like, here, that'll help. Right? What do you do? You jump in to help them. In the same way, when we're drowning in sin, you don't need somebody to show you how to swim. You need somebody to rescue you. In the same way, when you're sick, you don't need somebody to give you the website WebMD. You need a doctor to heal you. When you're standing before a judge, you don't need an application to law school. You need an attorney. In the same way, when you're drowning in life, you don't need somebody to tell you how to live life your best way possible. You need somebody to rescue you. And God jumped out of heaven into the waters of life to rescue us. Because a person was the answer. Not a law, not a book, a person was the answer. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me or comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. What he's saying is, I've jumped into the waters, and if you want to be rescued, follow me. So the gospel is not a gospel of taking the advice of Jesus. It's not applying the principles of the word of God to your life. It's following Jesus himself. And if you follow him, you'll follow him. He'll lead you out of the waters, set your feet on the solid rock of the foundation of the gospel, and lead you from here all the way to heaven. There's only one person that knows the way to heaven. And it is not Siri and it is not Google Maps. Only one person has left heaven and has actually taken the course down to earth and has taken the course back, and it's Jesus. So if you want to get to heaven, I can't show you the way. People on Twitter can't show you the way. People on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, they can't show you the way. All we can do is point you to Jesus because he is the way. And when he takes you to the way, you realize that the gospel is all about rescuing us from our sin, our death, our guilt, our shame, but also this present age. One of the, if you ever want to have fun, one of the funniest things you can do, especially in the Bible about somebody saying, well, I, I'm saved, and just say, from what? What are you saved from? And what I've learned is most people in the Bible Belt, they don't actually know what they're saved from or to. They were just in a church service, felt guilty about something, and wanted forgiveness. Notice when Paul reads the gospel, he doesn't say it's a gospel of forgiveness. He calls it a gospel of deliverance. He says that we'll be rescued from the evil present age. That word rescue actually is deliverance in many other translations, meaning when you get saved, the gospel of grace doesn't just forgive you of your sin, it delivers you from your sin. That means if you're still sinning, you probably didn't experience grace. And so he goes through this deliverance from this evil age and this shame. I don't know if you know this now, but this age we're living in is evil. As good as you want to make it out to be, you're going to have bad days and good days. You're going to see babies born and people die. You're going to see Auburn win and Alabama lose. There are bad days. 
There is cancer. There's diabetes. There's heart disease. There's violence. There's abortion. There's rape. There's racism. There's greed. There's poverty. It, it's an evil age. And the Bible is the only real philosophy that points us to the fact, that gives us an answer, that it says, yes, I know this age is evil. And you're not going to change it by lobbying some politician. You're not going to change it by tearing down the statue in front of the courthouse. You're not going to change it by being an advocate. It's not going to change. You have to be delivered from it. You cannot change it. And here's what he says, that this present evil age is full of sin, death, shame, pain, and violence. But there's an age to come that will be identified through peace, eternal life, eternal joy, eternal love, and eternal hope, where there'll be no tears, no sorrow, no sin, no shame, and no guilt. And the only people that get to experience that coming age are the people who've been rescued from the present age. And so when you preach the gospel, it's not just the gospel of you being forgiven. It's a gospel of you being delivered out of your sin because sin is what reigns in this age into a new age to come. Because sin is personal. Your sin affects you. It affects your relationships. It affects you. It affects your conscience. It affects your life. It affects your heart. It affects your identity. It affects everything about you. But sin is also social. It affects your kids. It affects your neighbors. It affects the people in church with you. It affects everything. But it's also universal that the earth groans because it's in pain from sin. I don't know if you realize, there should never be a wildfire or an earthquake on earth. There should never be a hurricane or a tsunami. There should never be death. There should never be violence. There shouldn't be animals eating other animals. It should be such in perfect harmony. When I say perfect harmony, I'm not just talking about people getting along. I'm talking about the universe in perfect harmony. Where everything functions exactly the way God designed for it to function. To always produce life, not death. And when the earth was functioning correctly in the Garden of Eden, it only produced flourishing life. But sin, which is universal, brings in this distortion, throws off the creative plan, and now things that used to produce life now produce death. And the only way to escape that is to get rid of this earth and this world and create a new world, which is exactly what the gospel says is going to happen. It says in Revelation 20, when Jesus returns, the old is going to pass away. He's going to destroy this earth and the sin that's broken it and create a new heavens and a new earth where there's no weeping, no tears, no sorrow, no grief, none of those things. Why? Because sin, not just personally and not just socially, but universally, will be destroyed and everything will be back to the Garden of Eden. That means the gospel is not just for you to have a better life. It's for the universe become better. And so the advocacy that people are trying to, to push, the greatest advocacy you could have is the gospel. That, hey, this earth is falling away. This earth is fading away, but there's going to be a new one. And if you want to be part of the new earth that you're looking to create now, the only way is to accept the gospel and to live with him. Tim Keller said this way, it's not just a wonderful plan for my life, but a wonderful plan for the world. It is about the coming of God's kingdom to renew all things. And so the gospel is about Jesus. It's about rescuing us. But it's also about this. And this is what Paul really hits. The gospel is about trusting and resting in the finished work of Jesus. Touch anybody say finished. The finished work of Jesus. 
Meaning he's completed the job. There's nothing you need to do to complete the job for him. There's nothing you can add to the job. There's nothing you can add on top of it. He finished it. And John 19 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now what? Finished. Said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Well, what was finished? The word there is telestai, meaning the job is complete. So what's complete? Since day one, when Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately had a plan. And the first part of that plan was there's some animal got killed, blood was shed, and he covered Adam and Eve's shame and their nakedness. He covered them. Then he says, there's going to come a time, there's going to be a son that's going to be born that's going to stomp the head of this serpent and stop this death grip of sin on the world. He's going to come, he's going to come through the line of David. He goes through all the Bible, gets through the law. The law was temporary to show that we needed salvation. It wasn't the solution, it was the diagnosis, but the cure was this man who's going to be born of a virgin. And as he was born of the virgin, he came and he preached and he taught the kingdom of heaven. He said, if you want to know what the Father looks like, look at me. People were like, who is this guy? Thinking he's a reflection of God. He said, I come from him. I know him. I'm going back to him. And if you want me to give in a good word for you, you better be nice to me. That's what he's really saying. And he lived that sinless life. Born sinless. Remained sinless. So he could be the sinless sacrifice. What the Passover lamb tried to do, he would complete. Went upon the cross and bled out. Down the wood cross at Calvary, onto the ground that he created, the dust that he used to form Adam was now covered in his own blood. Went to the grave, three days later resurrected from the grave, and if it was me, I'd been like, I told y'all so, like, I'd ha- I'm so sarcastic. I'd be like, y'all question me? Like, hell, 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 hell. Like, I, like I, I'm putting them all there. Where's Judas at? I'm going to start with Judas. Come here. Like, that's me, not Jesus. He shows up. Thomas is still doubting. He keeps continually revealing himself. And on the cross, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled. On the cross, every bit of the law was fulfilled. And so Jesus says, it is finished. He didn't say, I'm finished. He's now interceding at the right hand of the Father for you. But he said, it is finished. That pronoun, in a world of pronouns, that pronoun means the plan of God for your salvation is now complete. It's paid for in advance, in full. It is finished. The theological term means the penal substitutionary atonement, meaning the price that you owed for your sin that you could not pay Jesus went to the cross and he stamped a full and paid receipt on your penalty and said, it is finished. And if he said it is finished, that means you can't add anything to a finished job. So when you start to ask, well, you know, know, I understand, pastor, like, you know, you get saved, but you got to do this. No, no, it is finished. He did the work. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. Yeah, Pastor, what about good works? No, faith without works is dead. What about this? What about? No, no, listen. He didn't say Jesus plus tongues. He didn't say Jesus plus prophecy. 
They didn't say Jesus plus politics or Jesus plus conservatism or Jesus plus social advocacy or Jesus plus social justice or Jesus plus serving as an usher. He didn't say any of that. And the problem with us is we get it twisted. We confuse the results of salvation with the cause of salvation. That's what we do. We, we start to confuse the results that should, the fruit of salvation with the root of salvation. When you get saved, the cause of your salvation is the unmerited, undeserved, beautiful, scandalous grace of Jesus. But the result of experiencing grace should be good works, should be love, should be service, should be pursuing the things of the Spirit. There should be results that happen from that. But when you start saying, if you haven't done this, you aren't truly saved, you've missed the point of grace. And so, so many, that, that's, that's what Paul was dealing here with Galatians was, yeah, yeah, we're, they're saved, but they still didn't be circumcised. First of all, if that's the church membership in Galatia, ain't none of us going there. Secondly, what they were trying to do was impose the law back onto people who are already set free from the law. And that's what religious people do. They try to take away your freedom by adding more bondage. It's like you get saved, you come to the altar, and you lay your suitcases down, you experience this freedom. God is so good. You know, I laid down my, my alcoholism, I laid down my drugs, I laid down my shame, I laid down my guilt, I laid it all down, and you feel free. And then you stop by connection point, and like, hey, well, before you leave, hey, pick up these bags. Hey, you need to make sure you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you need to make sure you do this, you need to make sure you do that, because if you don't do that, you're not really saved. That's what they were doing at the churches of Galatians. Paul said, that's not, that's not the gospel anymore. It's only the gospel if it's grace only. It's unmerited favor. I'd read this a couple years ago. I was reading this book on Abraham Lincoln. And most people know that Abraham Lincoln was the president during the Civil War and all this stuff with the slavery and all this stuff. But there was a story that I kept checking to see if it was real. And everybody kept confirming this story. And he, he was at this courthouse and there was actually a slave auction going on. And he was so disturbed by this auction. But there's this one young girl there that they don't really know the age, but she was a young girl. It, he was so angry and disturbed that they'd be selling another human being, much less this young girl. He got angry. He didn't know what to do. He started to bid on her. He started to bid on her, and they'd bid higher and higher, and he kept bidding, and he bid on her, and he actually won the auction. And the girl comes to him, she's like, what are we supposed to do? He said, you're set free. And she's like, what do you mean I'm set free? She's like, you mean I can just go wherever I want to? He said, Yeah. He said, you're free. She's like, so I can just say whatever I want to? He said, yeah. She's like, so I'm free. I can go and do and live wherever I want to. He said, yeah. And she says, then I want to go with you. That is grace. When you experience somebody paying your fee, paying your cost, and they set you completely free, that compels you to want to be with them. It compels you to want to follow them. It compels you to want to lay down your life for them. That is what the gospel of grace does. We are saved by grace through faith for good works. And the moment you mess up that equation, you mess up your entire Christian journey. You're not saved by works through faith for grace. You're saved by grace, through faith, for works. Why? 
because God wants glory. That's what he says in verse 5. For the glory for him forever and ever and ever. If it doesn't give God glory, it's not of God. In Genesis 1, it says he, he created Adam and Eve, and it's imago Dei is the word. They reflected his image. They were made in his image. They reflected his glory. When they walked, they walked, they reflected the glory of God. When they talked, they reflected the glory of God. And through sin, that was all distorted. They no longer reflected God's image. They reflected their own. That's what the tree of knowledge was about. Instead of reflecting God's opinion, now they're reflecting their opinion. Instead of reflecting God's goodness, now they're reflecting their weakness. And so what happens is God literally just wanted people to reflect his image so that on earth were all these little satellites of glory of the kingdom of heaven. And in trying to accomplish that, sin distorted it. But what happens is as soon as you're saved, now your life is a mirror that reflects the glory of God. That's why grace is the only way of salvation. If works get involved, it's no longer his glory, it's your glory. And God is not going to fight for you over glory. Like, that's how scandalous grace is. That God gives you everything, and all he wants you to do is just reflect the goodness he's already given you. It's this beautiful example that it's so crazy that Paul has to keep coming back saying, listen, you're drinking the wrong stuff. Come back. This is the real thing. Grace. If it doesn't taste like Jesus, it's not grace. If it's not rescuing you from sin, if it's allowing you to stay in sin, it's not grace. If it's not trusting in his finished work, it's not grace. If you're adding something to it, it's not grace. If it's Coca-Cola with cherry, that ain't the real thing. And if it doesn't give him glory, it's not the real thing. That's grace. That's so scandalous, he gives it to you for free. And all you got to do is give him glory back. What an exchange. It's like Soren Kierkegaard, who was a theologian, mid-1900s, he explained it this way. He said there was this king. It's almost like an Aladdin-type story. There was this king who there was this peasant woman who was just beautiful. He ran into her to the marketplace. She didn't know he was a king. He loved this woman. But there's no way he could ever marry her. Now, granted, he could say, you know, he could decree that she was going to marry him. But who would want to decree and mandate somebody marry them? And so he kept trying to find ways. He had all these counselors. How can I, how can I get her to marry you? And he went through these things. Here was his plan. He took off his kingly robes, set them to the side. He left the castle, left his throne, got a job in the marketplace as a peasant. He's wearing peasant clothes, working a peasant job, and he came across the woman that he was in love with. And he began to build a relationship with her and woo her and love her. Until finally they got married. And when they got married, he revealed to her he was actually the king. She inherited everything he had. Everything he owned was hers. Everything that she ever needed was fulfilled. Why? Because he didn't want to make her love him. He wanted her to choose to love him for him. In the same way, Jesus took off his priestly kingly robes, set them to the side, left the castle of heaven, left the throne, came to earth, put on human flesh garments, lived his life as a peasant, walked around. He could have made us love him. But what kind of God, what kind of father would want to mandate his kids love him? And so he spent 33 years wooing us with this amazing love 
so that we would choose to marry him and follow him. In return, as the king, he gives us his inheritance, his provision, his peace, his status. Everything he has as the king is now ours. Why? Because we chose to receive his love. That's the gospel. In the day and age where so much is works-based, cancel culture, and judgment-based, the gospel of grace still works. It's the only thing the world will not and cannot counterfeit. Bow your heads and close your eyes just for one quick second. Grace is so simple yet so deep. It's almost counterintuitive. Like I've heard people say like, so, you know, Jesus loves me. He gave his life for me to rescue me from sin. And all I got to do is respond by giving my life back to him. And then I get everything, everything's wiped away and I get a brand new life. Yes. That's grace. That's unmerited. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Grace and the word deserve can never go together at any point in time. But I think one of the things that has to be accounted for is you have to realize you need to be rescued. You'll never follow somebody out of shallow waters. You'll only follow somebody out of deep waters. So maybe you're in the room and maybe you've raised your hand before, maybe you said yes to Jesus before, but you never allowed him to rescue you or deliver you from your sin, from your shame, and from this evil present age. Maybe you just wanted forgiveness. That's not the gospel. The gospel is deliverance from. So pastor, that's me. I'm not going to have you come forward or stand up today. If you said that's you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you just a second to just slip your hand up so I can, one, pray for you, but two, point you in the direction to get you some help to begin to understand grace and to live out that grace. Because the proper response to grace is repenting from your own efforts and own works to turn to trust in his goodness and his finished work of grace. So, Pastor, that's me. That's you. Just let me hand up real quick right where you're at. Thank you. Anybody else? You can put your hands up if you raise them. I'm going to pray for you. But after I'm done praying for you, after services to miss, if you would just swing by connection point, just say, hey, raise my hand. They'll help you out. They'll love on you. They'll encourage you. They'll strengthen you. But just let them know, hey, I raise my hand. I got a gift for you. But Father, we thank you for grace. In a world full of effort and works and accounting and you owe me and fairness, grace seems so counterintuitive. But Father, it's so kingdom-oriented. So we thank you for our grace, Father, through the blood of Jesus that was given to us even before we accepted it to wash away our sins, to make us new, and to exchange our dead life for his full life. Father, we thank you. I thank you for those that raise their hands, Father, that are confessing right now they need you. Father, I pray your grace rescues them from the present evil age. It sets their feet on the solid ground of the kingdom of heaven. Father, we love you. We bless you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.